Amen. If you would join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that's going to be the passage of Scripture that we study uh, this morning. I invite you to grab the Bible that's there in the pew uh, in front of you. If you don't have a Bible with you, that way you can follow along with our text today. Uh, what I have to share with you comes from God's Word. Anything that's from me is not of value, but because we're looking to God's Word, uh, it has value. It has, it has weight. And so I hope that uh, you'll be moved by that today. A couple of weeks ago, the Mega Millions jackpot reached $1.35 billion, with a B. And jackpots of these size are becoming more frequent now that so many states participate in multi-state lotteries. But while these grand prizes grow larger and larger, your odds of winning grow smaller and smaller. Those large numbers encourage a lot of people to play and it, for it to get a lot of publicity on the news, which means more people play, which means your odds of winning are smaller, are smaller. And I don't encourage you to, to play the lottery. Um, I, I agree with Am- Ambrose Beer said, a lottery is often just a tax on people who are bad at math, right? You don't recognize how slim your odds of winning are. But when we hear those big numbers, we're enticed to play. Whether it's the Mega Millions jackpot or the Fall Festival half pot, right? Those numbers get larger and larger and more and more people are encouraged to play. Now the odds of winning the lottery are very slim, very slim. But they're not zero. Just ask the winner of that $1.35 billion who bought a ticket in Maine at the hometown Gas and Grill in Lebanon, Maine. Now, we don't know that person's name because they have opted to remain anonymous, which is pretty smart. Because if you knew that I won $1.35 billion, right, um, you'd suddenly remember favors you had done for me, right? Uh, I actually have a friend who lives in Maine, and when this news broke, she posted online, everyone can stop texting me that they love me, I am not the winner. This person remained anonymous, but someone did win. The odds were not in their favor, but they won. Just because the odds are slim doesn't mean that it won't happen. Because improbable is not the same as impossible. Improbable is not the same as impossible. And that's important for us to recognize this morning, because for many people, when they think about miracles, they think that they're impossible because it's so improbable. They use the same logic for determining if miracles actually happened. If you think about it, something unlikely must be true. Because you and I are here in this moment. Existence is improbable. It's unlikely. Existence as a whole is improbable and unlikely. And your existence is unlikely and improbable. Yet you are here. The fact that you're here this morning, that you have life, that you have breath in your lungs, you're a lottery winner already. It's against the odds that you would be here. So while existence is unlikely and your existence is even more unlikely, here you are because improbability is not impossibility. 
And if we only believe in things that are probable, no one has an explanation for why we are here. Because even those who don't believe in a God believe in some improbable chance that caused the earth and all that we know to exist. Mark Clark points out that this is the same reason that many people years ago thought that all swans were white. They would have said confidently, swans are white, all swans are white. But then when the English went to Australia, they encountered their first black swan. And black swans are very rare. They're improbable. Most of us have probably not seen one in person, perhaps only on television or in a photo. But just because they're improbable does not mean that they're impossible. And you wouldn't really be able to say, matter-of-factly, that all swans are white unless you had seen every swan that had ever existed. And I've got better things to do with my life than look at swans, right? Alvin Patinga has pointed out that our laws of nature, the things that we refer to as the laws of nature, that they're not really laws of nature. They're actually our descriptions of how the world operates. In fact, Newton's laws of motion and laws of thermodynamics were proved not to be laws when Einstein posed his theories of relativity. Now, Newton's ideas and his theories, his laws of motion and thermodynamics, they were proved again and again and again. Because of the research, the, 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 the theory that he had put together, many people created machines that worked on those theories. And those machines proved his laws of motion again and again, a million times over, daily for years. So for Einstein to come along and pose theories that showed that those perhaps didn't explain everything or that they were inadequate, that was... That was groundbreaking stuff. And it didn't show that Newton's theories were wrong, just that they couldn't encapsulate everything. There is much that we understand about the world. And I don't intend to discredit the laws of nature or the science that has brought us so much progress. I think that we would do well, however, to recognize that they perhaps don't encapsulate everything. The truth is that there's much about our world that we do not understand. And we, those of us who call upon Jesus as our Savior, those who refer to ourselves as believers, we believe that when God works and does miracles, that he is doing the supernatural, that is working outside of the bounds of the natural. Not that he discredits the laws of nature, but rather that he works outside of them. I don't tell you this morning that science is flawed, but rather I believe that God works outside of it. C.S. Lewis said this in his essay on miracles. The question whether miracles occur can never be answered simply by experience. Every event which might claim to be a miracle is, in the last resort, something presented to our senses, something seen, heard, touched, smelled, or tasted. And our senses are not infallible. They're not infallible. Some of you experienced 
COVID and you lost your taste or your smell or both, right? And it wasn't that suddenly food had no taste, right? The rest of us could still taste. It was that your senses had become dulled by a disease. And some of you might have experienced that your sense was then changed, that your smell or your taste did not come back as it was previously. It's because your sense of smell or your sense of taste is not infallible. It's not perfect, right? This is the reason that you and I sometimes disagree about food that's good or too spicy, right? I think it's too spicy. You think it's not spicy at all. We have the different because our, our, our sense of taste differs. And not only are our senses fallible or imperfect, they're not all-encompassing. I think I have pretty good taste. But there's food I haven't tasted. I haven't tasted everything. Right? And sometimes I'll say something pretty sure of myself, like my grandmother's chicken salad is the best chicken salad. Right? Now, based on all the chicken salad I've had, that's, that's what I believe and that's what I know. But I haven't had all the chicken salad. I would love to give myself to that research for the rest of my life. Right? Just, just even if it wasn't fallible or imperfect, it doesn't mean it's all-encompassing. Even if your senses could not be fooled, it hasn't seen everything or heard everything or known everything. Lewis would go on to say, and if anything extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we have been the victims of an illusion. Right? You see a magic trick. You don't believe in magic. You know that the magician has performed what we refer to as a trick. They have tricked you. Right? And if you ever find out how they did it, it's often disappointing. Right? It's like, oh, that's silly. I can't believe I fell for that. We tell ourselves it's a trick. And so when the extraordinary seems to have happened, we can always say that we've been victims of an illusion. If we hold a philosophy which excludes the supernatural, this is what we will always say. What we learn from experience depends on the kind of philosophy we bring to the experience. It is therefore useless to appeal to experience before we have settled, as well as we can, the philosophy in question. We believe in miracles, not because they're probable or not, and not because they're natural. We believe in miracles because they're improbable and abnormal, but they're verifiable and they're powerful. I'm not going to convince you this morning that miracles are normal or that they're probable because they're not. If they were normal, if they were probable, they wouldn't be miracles. We wouldn't refer to them as such. When in reality, there are things that are normal and improbable that happen every morning that we don't consider to be miracles. It is a miracle that the sun rose this morning. And you might not feel that way because it happens every morning. But sit and watch a sunrise. It's a powerful, miraculous thing. But the miracles that we're talking about, the ones that happened in Scripture, the three dozen miracles that Jesus performed, they're improbable. And they're abnormal. And that's part of what makes them powerful. Now, the New Testament records about three dozen miracles. 
And there's only two miracles that are cataloged in all four of the Gospels. One being the feeding of the 5,000. And just my theory, my personal opinion on this, is that the reason all four Gospels record this one is because it was the one experienced by the most people. And the second one that all four Gospels record is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think that that one is included not only because so many people saw Jesus after he rose from the dead, but because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is central to our faith. It's central to who Jesus is. Of course, not everyone believed in Jesus. Clearly, some people had to not believe in Jesus for him to be killed. There had to be some people who felt that he was a liar or a lunatic for them to put him to death. But there were some people who were not convinced or were not fully understanding who became convinced. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul tells us about some of these people. He tells us about the eyewitness testimony of a failure, of a skeptic, and of a hater. So let's read 1 Corinthians 15 together, starting in Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel or the good news, which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, now here, Paul says, I gave to you what I received. And he's, he's speaking of the fact that there's been an integrity in what he heard and what he passed on. And if you're here this morning and you did not hear the message from last week, your mind might automatically go to the game of telephone. Because many times skeptics have a hard time believing the truth of the gospel because they think it was passed from person to person to person to person. And that there was some loss in the integrity of the message in that constant transmission. I encourage you to go back and watch last week's sermon because we talked about this. And we talked about the fact that it wasn't from one person to one person to one person, but rather it was a group of people repeating again and again the message. And less like the game of telephone is more like everyone saying the Pledge of Allegiance together. Do you remember a few years back when there was a little bit of a move to remove the words under God from the Pledge of Allegiance, right? There were some people who were offended by that phrase. and They wanted to remove those two words from this longer statement. And there, there were these people, they made a concerted effort, a legal effort to remove these words. And I'm sure that there are people in our country that when they say the Pledge of Allegiance, they omit those words. But to this day, when I hear the Pledge of Allegiance said, and when I say it, those words are included. Because even that effort could not overcome the fact that we have repeated it a certain way for generations. Sometimes there are efforts to discredit the word of God, to discredit the message of the gospel. But because there is this record, there is this repetition of the same message by multiple people in multiple sources, we have the truth that stands before us today. And what Paul says next in verse 3 is not just another sentence in the line. It is a creed of the early church that they repeated often in their gatherings as a group. 
there are some things that if I started to say them, we could all join in and say them together. The Pledge of Allegiance is a good example. Perhaps if I were to start the Lord's Prayer, many of us would be able to say it together. This sentence that Paul is about to say is something that the Corinthian people, when they heard it in this letter, when it was read in their congregation, they could have all joined in in saying it together because this is something they've repeated regularly. It was their creed. So I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Then Paul goes on to give us these witnesses who saw this. Verse 5, and that he was seen of Cephas, which is the other name for Simon Peter, and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brothers at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. That's an important phrase because Paul is saying you can go and talk to them if you need to. But some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then all of the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen also by me as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty or vain, and your faith is also empty or vain. Yes, and we are bound, we, and yes, we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ whom he did not raise up. If in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. This past week, I sat in a room with about 60 church leaders from Evansville, and we talked through a recent study that was conducted by the Welburn Baptist Foundation. They mailed out surveys to people that live in our area to get their thoughts on faith and on the church. And there were several interesting findings from this study, but one of the most concerning findings of the study was that only 13% of non-Christian Generation Z and millennial residents in our city view the church as trustworthy. By the way, before I jump into that, there's something about the study that I did not like. Um, I was born in 1982, and just depending on which survey you're looking at, I either fall in millennial or Gen X. And in this one, I was made Gen X. So I was made a whole generation older in this study. I didn't like that. Um, beside that point, everything in the study was very well done. Only 13% of non-Christian Gen Z and millennial residents in our city view the church as trustworthy. That's concerning. Because people look at the church and they see it as something not worth giving their trust to. And there's good reason for that, right? 
There, there have been plenty of stories in the news about scandals and abuses in the church. There have been churches that did not portray the love of Christ or did not give the message of Christ. Churches that have taken advantage of people, have abused people. And for this reason, the, the institution of church is not trusted. But someone made a very solid point that while people will often mistrust an institution, they will trust a person that they know. Probably you have experienced someone being painted with a very broad brush on the news. Some, something on the news has said something along the lines of all cops do this, or all Democrats do that, or all Republicans do that, right? And you know that to be non-factual because you know someone who does not fit the broad painted strokes. You know someone who doesn't fit into that mold. When a group of people is painted with a broad brush in media or online, we resist the mischaracterization when we know an exception personally. Just like you'd know, it's possible to win the lottery if your friend was someone who won. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he's not writing to a group of people he doesn't know. Now, there are some church letters that he writes, the churches that he had indirect contact with, but the Corinthians he knew personally. He'd been in their gatherings. He'd been in their homes. He'd talked to them face to face. He knew them and they knew him. He knew these people. He was familiar with them. And so he says in verse 3, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. He says, I'm giving you what I knew Firsthand, and then repeats that creed. And then Paul talks about his personal testimony. He says in verse 8, Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of time, for I am the least of the apostles. I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Paul refers to him as one born out of due time. He's basically saying, I'm the least likely of apostles. We talked last week a little bit about the fact that you know, some people worry that the disciples put together the message of Jesus being the Son of God and dying and raising again because it was a conspiracy that they put together. And we talked last week about reasons that that would be very difficult to be true. If there was anyone who would have held to that theory back then, it was Paul. Because Paul was convinced that these people were evil. And he worked diligently and tirelessly to put these people, these Christians, these Jesus followers, in jail. He believed that they were all part of a vast conspiracy. Paul was a conspiracy theorist. Perhaps some of you, you have a conspiracy theorist in your life. Some of you are conspiracy theorists. Because you look around the world and you feel like you see connections. Now listen, there are conspiracies at work in our world. But just because you see a connection between a video game that you played and a YouTube video that you watched does not mean that you now have all the secrets about our government. Okay? Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun of anyone here in the room, but if we're not careful, we'll make these, these broad connections. Right? And perhaps someone in your family, someone that you're close to, someone that you work with, has these vast conspiracy theories that they have, and you know how difficult it is to talk to them because there's no basis to stand on. There's nothing to stand on to say, well, if you look at this, they'll discredit any fact. 
that doesn't meet their perspective. Paul was that guy. Paul did not want to hear anything that the disciples had to say. He was a conspiracy theorist. He did not believe in Jesus, but then suddenly something changed. Jesus appeared to him in resurrected bodily form, and his life was changed. And he went from being someone who was an enemy of the gospel to someone who was an evangelist for the gospel. Paul was the least likely of adherence to the gospel. And yet he is the one who believes in the resurrection so much that his life is transformed. And he lives every day in light of it. In fact, it was so unlikely for him to become a Christian that when he did become a Christian, the disciples didn't believe it. The guys who believed that their Savior had died and rose again, they were able to believe that, but they couldn't believe that Paul was legit. And they kept him at arm's reach because they were afraid it was all just a, a ruse. It was an op to, to infiltrate their circle. They, they kept him at distance for some time to see if it was real. Paul was the least likely to come into agreement with the disciples, but it happened. It was improbable, but it wasn't impossible. And he became a believer. And then Paul tells us about another unlikely witness to the resurrection. He tells us about James the brother of Jesus. Verse 7 says, After that he was seen of James, then by all of the apostles. How many of you have a sibling? Right? How many of you have a younger sibling? Right? Now, if you have a younger sibling, you probably know that your parents think that that younger sibling can walk on water. Right? <laughs> but you know they can't. Right? How many of you have an older sibling? Right? If you have an older sibling, you know that that older sibling believes that they know everything, don't they? And you, the younger sibling, know that they're wrong. Right? James was the younger sibling of Jesus. And he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He thought he was crazy. James is among those who come to Jesus at one point. They're trying to talk to him because they think he's gone mad. John chapter 7, it tells us that his brothers told him, listen, if you're really the Messiah, you should go to Judea. In other words, get out of town. Go somewhere else, right? Some of you love your siblings now that they live hundreds of miles away. That's what they wanted for Jesus. Why don't you go to another place? No one who wants to become a public figure does their works in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. If you're really the Messiah, you should want everybody to know. And John chapter 7, verse 5 says, For even his own brothers did not believe him. James had the skepticism that only a sibling could have. And yet, after the resurrection, James changes his mind and not only tells others that his half-brother is the Messiah, the Son of God, that he rose from the dead. James would become a martyr. He would die for that belief. Paul was a conspiracy theorist. James was a skeptic. They both became believers. And then lastly, Paul mentions Peter by name. And Peter was always a believer. 
but he was also a mess. He was constantly making a mess of things. And on the night that Jesus is arrested, he tries to stand up for Jesus and he makes a mess of things. And then he's so embarrassed that he denies that he knows Jesus. He becomes fearful. He, he makes this decision to return to fishing. And I know that many of us, we go fishing and it's not like a completely change of life situation. Maybe you want it to be a change of life. That's going to be what you do now. But Peter says, I'm going fishing, meaning I'm returning to my profession. But then Jesus appears to him. And Peter not only sees Jesus resurrected, Peter experiences Jesus' love in spite of his mistakes. And Peter believes. And Peter becomes an evangelist of the gospel and the message of Jesus' resurrection. And he would die for his faith. And all three of the men here went through a period where they either did not believe or worked against or failed at the Christian life. And they all became evangelists of and martyrs for the faith. Why? Because they saw Jesus risen from the dead. They were eyewitnesses to the greatest miracle of miracles. That Jesus did not remain dead that he raised from the dead. They saw and they verified this miracle themselves. But I want you to see that the miracle of the resurrection is not only verifiable, it's powerful. Paul says in this passage, specifically in verses 17 to 19, look at them with me, that the resurrection is central to the Christian faith and it's powerful. He says, if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile or vain or empty, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep or who have died in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. We're miserable if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead. Paul's main premise is, some Corinthian believers were saying there is no resurrection after this life, that once we die, that's it. And Jesus is a good teacher for this life, but it doesn't really carry forward because there's no resurrection from the dead. And Paul is saying, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus didn't raise from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, this is all worthless. And we're wasting our time. But if he is God, and he did raise from the dead, then he can raise us from the dead. And if he can raise us from the dead, he can save us from our sins. You see, we don't believe in a somewhat powerful being. We don't believe in a partial Savior. We believe in a totally all-powerful God. We don't believe in an absent-minded overseer, but we believe in one who came to live among us as one of us to experience life like we do and then save us. We believe in a loving, all-powerful Savior. And because Christ is risen, we do not live in vain, but rather we live with purpose. Paul would go on to talk about in the 30 to 34 verses of this chapter, he would talk about facing danger in places like Ephesus, Paul was constantly putting himself at risk because he believed. And that belief not only gave him hope, it gave him purpose. You know what people are missing in our day and age? They're missing meaning and purpose. And Paul had found it in Jesus. 
But most importantly, what Paul wants us to see is that if Christ is not resurrected, we are still in our sins. He says in verse 17, if Christ is not raised, your faith is in vain and you are yet in your sins. The message of the gospel is not just that Jesus rose from the dead. The message of the gospel is that Jesus overcame death. And what is death? Death is a byproduct or symptom of sin. Death was introduced into our existence because of sin. Death is an effect of sin, and Christ overcame death, hell, and the grave. He overcame sin. And the resurrection for all who believe is the final triumph over sin. Friend, you are destined to die. One of the things that Alpha says is that the probability of death is very high. It's one to one. Your odds of winning the lottery are very slim, but your odds of dying are very high. Every one of us will face death one day. The Bible says it is appointed to men once to die. Everyone will face death. And the reason that everyone faces death is because everyone has sin. It's in our nature and it's in the things that we do. And I know that you might be here and you might say, I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not saying you're that bad of a person. I'm saying you're imperfect. Because the only one without sin is Christ, who was perfect. I'm not saying that you're worse than other people. I'm saying that we're all lost. We're all far from God. We're all far from perfect. And that imperfection, that sin, not only brings upon us death, it brings upon us judgment for eternity. And the resurrection of Christ is what the hope of being saved from this sin hinges upon. We sing about Christ conquering death a lot here. And the reason we sing about Christ conquering death is that when he conquered death, he conquered our sin. He saved us. That's what he did. You know, every miracle is about transformation. Jesus did miracles of healing. He healed people. That's transforming the lame to be able to walk again. It's transforming blind eyes into seeing eyes. Transforming mouths that cannot speak to mouths that are able to speak. He performed miracles of nature. He transformed water into wine. He transformed rough seas into calm waters. He did miracles of the spiritual, where he transformed those that were demon-possessed into Jesus-following, gospel-preaching people. His miracles were all about transformation. And friend, he is still in the transformation business today. He's still changing lives. Paul, Paul would write a follow-up letter to this one. And in his follow-up letter to the Corinthians, he would say, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. They're transformed. Old things are passed away. Behold, 
all things are become new. I mentioned earlier that I was born in 1982. And for those of you that are good at math, you know that that means I'm now 40 years old. I'm not only 40, I'm Gen X. And at this point in my life, I find myself becoming a little more cynical, a little more skeptical, a little more pessimistic, right? And if I'm not careful, I'll allow this to creep into my thinking, and I'll think that the way people are is just the way that they are. And for the most part, that's true. People show you who you are, who they are, that's who they are. That's the way they're going to act. You know what that's doing? That's living off of probability, not possibility. It's improbable that people change, but it's not impossible. Because the hope of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection becomes very personal when it doesn't just make us nice or moral, it makes us new. We're different. Not because we're great, not because we got disciplined, but because Jesus made us new. And the same power that changes lame legs into walking legs and blind eyes into seeing eyes and dead bodies into living bodies changes broken people into new people. Not only is the resurrection verifiable, it's powerful and it's hopeful. And that's why I pray you believe it. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. If this morning God is working in your heart, I encourage you to respond to the Lord in prayer. The Lord has spoken to you. I encourage you to reply to him. I encourage you to respond to him. It might be that you respond to him in prayer. It might be that you respond to him in praise. Perhaps you're here this morning and you are reminded that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ and he is making you new. Old things have passed away. All things are becoming new. There's been a change in your life. He's bringing about transformation and you want to give him worship for that. I invite you to do that. You're here today and you recognize that there's some old things he's still working on that he's, he's convicting you about. You need to confess them. I encourage you to do that. If you're here today and you're starting to believe, you're starting to grasp faith, Friend, reach out for more. I'll meet you there. Lord, I ask that you'd work in our hearts and we would respond to your truth appropriately. We ask these things in your name.